Well, it is great to be with you this morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. So if you're joining us online, good to have you. If you're in Amped, if you're in Blend, your Roan County, Bearden, glad to have you guys with us. We've been in a series in the book of Revelation. And so today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your Revelation journals, Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. And I got to tell you, as, as we talked about, even before we ever went in to study the book of Revelation, we were talking about it. And at first I was like really pumped. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And then like kind of the fear set in and I go, is that really a good idea? Should we really do this? And it's like, well, here we go. We are doing it. And I got to tell you, a little like confessional time, okay? When I think about the book of Revelation, see, I've been to Bible school, I've been to seminary, and we did some study in the book of Revelation, and I've read the book of Revelation, and here's what I did with the book of Revelation. If somebody came and said, hey, what's the book of Revelation about? I would say this, Jesus wins, that's what I would say. And, and yes, and that, is that true? Absolutely, it is true. Jesus does win. That's spoiler alert. We're not there yet. He's, he's winning uh, as we get there. But Jesus wins. But, but I got to tell you, that was a little bit of a cop-out. It was a cop-out because there's so much in the book that I didn't know what to do with that it was easier just to say, well, he wins and he figures it all out in the meantime. And, and while it's true, it, it may, allowed me to be a little bit lazy when it came to approach the book of Revelation. And so when we started studying the book of Revelation, and as I spent time studying this week about the passage that we're jumping into, it was fascinating. It was so good to dig deeper into it. And I love the question that we're asking as we deal with the book of Revelation as a church, is what do we do with this book? And that question I want to keep in mind as we jump into Revelation 6. But in order to understand Revelation 6 through, we're going to be kind of 6 and 7 with a tiny bit of 8. As we jump into that, we have to rewind to last week. Revelation 4 and 5 sets the context for Revelation 6 really through kind of 16, 17, 18 kind of time frame. If we don't understand and have a grasp of Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to miss it. The big idea that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5 last week is this, is that Jesus is worthy of my worship. If we remember back to Revelation chapter 4, John is having this incredible vision and he sees one on a throne, right? And, and he talks about all these brilliant colors. And he, it's almost like John's turning his head and he goes, oh, it's like Jasper and Carnelian and all these brilliant lights. And there's a rainbow encircling the throne and a sea of glass in front of him. And, and he, John's just going, it's incredible. And then he notices something. He goes, there's these four living creatures that encircle the throne. And these four living creatures, they are, they're freaky. They're super freaky. One has a face of a lion. One has a face of an ox. One has a face of a man. One has a face of an eagle. And if that wasn't weird enough, they're hovering. Why? Because they have six wings. That's weird. And they're hovering and they're floating. And they're continually, day and night, these four living creatures are calling out, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty, the one who sits on the throne. Now, let's just be honest. If one of those living creatures all of a sudden appeared above my head right now, we would freak out and run. That's what we would do. 
But yet, what are those creatures doing? The creatures that we would look at and go, that's holy, that's distinct. Holy means set apart, different, completely other than. If one of those appeared right here, right now, we would freak out and go, that's holy. And what are those creatures doing? They're looking at the one on the throne and they're going, you are holy, holy, holy. They emphasize it. They go, God, you are so completely distinct, so other, so pure. And John notices that as they're crying out this, there's 24 other thrones that sit around the throne and they're the 24 elders and they're taking their crowns and they're falling on the face before the one on the throne and they're throwing the crowns at the throne and they're going, God, you are holy. So God is absolutely worshiped as holy, as set apart, as distinguished. But yet we get to Revelation chapter four, verse 11. And they're worshiping God for another reason, not only because of his distinctness, his holiness, they worship him for this. Look what they say. They say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. They are praising God. Why are they praising God? They're praising God because he is worthy. Why? Because he's the creator. And we got to understand this. If God is creator and sustainer of all things, he has absolute authority over all of his creation. As creator, as the one who made everything, as the one who sustains the whole universe and everything in it, including your life and mine, he is absolutely has the rightful authority to do whatever he wants with his creation. Why? Because it's his. Then we get to Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, they zero in, the author John zeroes in on the fact that the one sitting on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And it's, and it's evident that the scroll needs to be open and John's looking around heaven and it's almost like all of heaven is in a pause and, and they're looking who is worthy to open the scroll and they can't find anyone. And John begins to weep bitterly because no one is worthy to open the scroll. And then he hears a voice and I love this. We're going to see this again. We see it throughout the book of Revelation. We hear this. John hears, and then what does John see? There's this play that happens in the book of Revelation. So John heard in Revelation 5, I heard, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says what? I turned and I saw. I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. I turned and I saw what? A lamb looking as if it had been slain. And that lamb, Jesus Christ, walks up to the throne. He takes the scroll and heaven rejoices. Why? Because he's worthy to open the scroll. And that's where leads us off today. Jesus is worthy of all praise, and he is worthy of all praise. Why? Because he is the creator, he is the sustainer of all things, and as the creator, as the sustainer, guess what? He is the rightful judge. And that's our big idea. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Jesus is the rightful judge. So let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and jump in. If you have your John journals, or John, Revelation journals, I hope you have it. If you don't, grab one on the way out. If you have your phone, your Bible, whatever it is, Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched. When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, 
And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so the context of this is what? Jesus is worthy of worship, and now we're seeing Jesus is the rightful judge. And so we have these four horsemen of the apocalypse. How many of you have ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse before? I mean, there's probably movies about it, and it's kind of this freaky thing. So we have these four horsemen revealed. What are these four horsemen? These four horsemen are the judgment and wrath of God beginning to be poured out on the sin of the earth. And so we have the first horseman come. It's a rider on a white horse. Now, I'm not going to get into what I think every single horseman is and this kind of stuff and and all the detail of that, but I do want to focus a little bit of the rider on the white horse because there are some people who see the rider on the white horse and they confuse this rider on the white horse with the rider on the white horse that's found in Revelation 19 that is Jesus himself. And so some say, look, there's a rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, that's Jesus. This is a rider on the white horse, it must be Jesus. And the answer is, no, it's not. I'm fully convinced that this is not Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one who commands the, one of the four living creatures to beckon this person to come. This horse, this rider represents conquest on the earth. This person will come and will conquer the earth and, and will bring war upon the earth. And what I want, if you ever want a fascinating study Compare what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24 when he talks about the end times with what is actually happening in Revelation chapter 6. Why? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus explicitly says in verses 4 and 5, he says, See to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So this rider on the white horse comes imitating Christ, maybe even claiming deity for himself, and will lead many astray. And Jesus goes, there will be a lot of people who will come who will be actually anti-Christ, people who will come who will imitate me, but that's not me. Don't fall for it. Then there's a rider that comes, the next one, the rider on the red horse. And the rider on the white horse and the rider on the red horse are pretty similar. The, The second rider, the rider on the red horse, he brings war upon the earth. 
He stirs up strife among the nations. There's, there's warring factions on the earth. And so the rider on the red horse represents war. And, and so then we get to the third horse. And the natural outpouring of war is what? Famine. Famine comes. People are dying and then famine comes. And that's the rider on the black horse and the third horse. He comes with scales in his hands. And he says something that's a little bit foreign to us. Rider on the black horse comes and he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. What does that mean? A denarius was a day's wage. And so we got this war stuff going on on the earth. Food supplies are going to become extremely limited. And so what happens? A person will work all day. A quart of wheat will feed one man for one day. And so you work all day and you get a McDonald's number seven. That's what you get. You get one meal for one day. Why? Because inflation goes through the roof. Everything becomes extremely expensive. And why does he say three quarts of barley? Three quarts of barley was like a Lunchable. It was, it was cheap. It wasn't good. And what happened was is that you would barely be able to keep your family alive, maybe, with a full day's wage. And so what naturally is the outpouring of that is that you have the rider on the fourth horse, the pale horse, representing death, that these people, that there's going to be thousands, if not millions of people that will die. And it really does represent pestilence of, of there will be great disease that will come on the face of the earth and will wipe out tons of people. So what do we have, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these first four seals, is that the wrath of God is being poured out as judgment upon the sin of the earth. And I got to tell you what was very troubling to me this week, and I had to ask the question, is my theology big enough to handle this? And I've got to ask you the question too. Is your theology, your view of God big enough to handle the fact that Jesus commands the forces of evil to accomplish his will, his will. Jesus commands the forces of evil. These riders on the horses are forces of evil. And who is in control? Who is in absolute authority and sovereign over the whole thing? Jesus, the lamb who had been slain. He is in absolute control over this whole series. It is the wrath of God being poured out. Then we get to the fifth seal. Look at it in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we get to the fifth seal and the scene shifts. We have this scene upon the earth. We have these first four seals that are open. And the, the context is here on the earth. And the scene shifts. He opens the fifth seal. And we get a glimpse in the heaven. And it says there's martyrs who are under the altar of God. People who have given their very lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people, they cry out to the Lamb. And they say, 
How long? How long till this is done? How long till we are fully redeemed? And guess what? They don't get the answer they want. They come and they get a white robe, this sealing protection around them, this marking of them. And what is, what's the response? Wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. And the reason they have to wait a little longer should be very disturbing to us. Wait a little longer because the number of martyrs is not yet complete. There will be more people, more followers of Jesus Christ that will give their very lives to follow me. And I don't know about you, but that freaks me out a little bit. And it's a reality that's happening around the world. And we're going to talk more about that here in a minute. But the reason why that the end has not yet come, there are going to be more people that will give their lives as a testimony to Jesus Christ. They will give the sacrifice of their lives. And then we get to the sixth seal. Starting in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then look at this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and amongst the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and listen to this question who can stand the sixth seal the sixth seal is what's known in the old testament is the great and terrible day of the lord this is it Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. We saw that in Revelation chapter 4. We see it throughout the scriptures. Jesus creates the universe. He sustains it. He's the one that is keeping all things in motion. He's the one keeping the planets in orbit. He is the one sustaining all things. And on this sixth seal, it's almost like he removes his hand and it's almost like he goes, creation, have your way. And what happens? Chaos ensues. And the wrath of God is being fully realized in all of creation. And I find it so sad that those who have all the status that one could ever want in this earth, the kings, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and then he even goes on to say, the slave, the poor, everyone who is not, who does not know the lamb, who has not been covered by the blood of the lamb, what do they do? They go to the hills and they seek shelter in the hills. Why? Because they know in this moment, they know who Jesus is and they don't want to face Jesus. Instead, what do they do? They run to the hills, they seek shelter in the hills. And what do they pray to? 
They don't pray to the God who is pouring out the wrath. They don't turn to Jesus. What do they do? They pray to the rocks. They say, it's better that the rocks fall on us than to face the wrath of the Lamb. It's going to be a terrible day. And they ask the question, who can stand? Who can stand? And the answer right now, right at the end of this, of chapter 6, is presumably no one. No one can stand. And that question sets the stage for chapter 7. And so in chapter 7, we get a pause in the action for a minute. And so there's these four angels that are on the earth and they're holding back further judgment on the earth. It says they're holding back winds, these winds of judgment, this further judgment that's going to take place on the earth. And it says a fifth angel rises up and it says, hold it back. Look in verse three with me. It says this, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until what? We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Until we have sealed the servants of our God on the foreheads. And then we have this play on words again. And the number who were to be sealed, John says, I heard the number. And the number was 144,000. And then he hears the breakdown. It really is a military breakdown, kind of referencing back to Numbers chapters 1 and 2. And there's this military breakdown. He goes 12,000 from all these different tribes of Israel. But then it's fascinating. He hears this number, 144,000. And then look at verse 9. After this, I looked... So he hears a number, and then he turns, and he looks, and he sees. And what does it say? And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Looking at this word, underline it, highlight it. What are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He hears a number, 144,000. He turns and he sees what? A multitude that no one could count. From every language, tribe, people, nation, the whole earth, people from the whole earth are gathered standing before the Lamb. And what are they doing? Look at verse 13. I, I love the Bible. This is so good. Then one of the elders, presumably one of the 24 elders that encircles the throne, addressed me. And I, this is like, there's even humor in Revelation. Like, look at this. The elder comes to John. John's having this incredible vision. And one of the elders comes and goes, hey, who are these guys? Clothed in white robes. And from where have they come? John's having this vision. He's confused. I would imagine John seeing all this. And he's like, oh, my goodness, what is taking place? And the elder's like, hey, do you know who they are? And John says what to him? Sir, I know you know. And he said to me, yeah, actually, I do. These are the ones 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And look at what happens. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, he's going to shelter them. Now, I want you to think as we read through this little section, think back to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and think about the judgment that is being poured out. And so there's war, there's famine, there's death, there's not enough food, all of this stuff. And look at what the lamb does for those who stand before him. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. There's going to be peace. They shall hunger no more. In a time of where there was famine, where there was, great, oh, there was great worry about where food was going to come for, they shall hunger no more. They're not going to thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I look at that and I go, do you know how many tears were shed, how many martyrs were shed, and how much pain his people went through? And God's going to go, in that day, guess what? I'm going to take care of them. So we end Revelation chapter 6 with, who can stand and praise be to God who through the shedding of his blood allows us to stand with a great multitude in heaven. Why? Because of the blood of the lamb. Who can stand? Oh, those who have been redeemed by the blood. They can stand. We get to chapter 8 where the seventh seal is open. Chapter 8, the seventh seal is open. And this is what's fascinating. We're not going to really dive into chapter 8. Why? Because he opens the seventh seal, and you know what happens? Seven trumpets come out. That's what happens. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And guess what we're going to do? Study the seven trumpets in another week. <laughs> So we're not going there today, but that's what the seventh seal is. So I want to I go back, and I was thinking about this this week, and the last few weeks, actually, of going, and I, I was going before the Lord, and I'm going, God, God, there's, there's so much in this passage. There's so much of like, of, of these four horsemen and the martyrs and, and the 144,000. And God, I can get buried down in all of this stuff. God, what, what do you want me to share with your people, with your church? How do I answer? How do I help people go? What do I do with this book? And I really do think God laid a few things on my heart to share with you as we look at this. And the first thing is this. The first thing is that Jesus' judgment is coming. Jesus' judgment is coming. Can I just tell you, that is not popular. That is not something we like to talk about. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God, that the wrath of God will be poured out on the sinfulness of man. He will right the wrongs. People will give an account for their sin. And to bury our head in the sand and just focus on one aspect of Jesus, we are not doing ourselves or the world any favor. A few weeks ago, Mark Hoffman talked about Jesus, and his big idea a few weeks ago was, I must embrace 
all of who Jesus is. I must embrace all of who Jesus is. Is Jesus love? Yes. But the problem is, is our culture wants to define what that love means. And guess what? They don't get to define it. Guess who gets to define what is actually love? God, who is himself love, gets to define it. Not our culture. Jesus gets to do what he wants. Jesus is the rightful judge. Why? Because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. And we as his creation are subject to him. Jesus' judgment is coming. Which leads to the second thing. The judgment is coming. And Jesus' judgment, this impending judgment, is going to be far better. It's going to be far worse than I ever can think or imagine. And some of you might be sitting in here right now going, how is Jesus' judgment going to be far better? Because one of the things that we've talked about kind of throughout the series, even all the way back in the book of Genesis, it's a biblical truth throughout the whole of Scripture that salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. And why is the judgment of God so much better than I can ever think of it? It's because Jesus, in his love, in his mercy, took the judgment upon himself that whoever turns to him in faith does not have to face the judgment of God, but gets to stand before the throne of God and worship him as holy. And I don't know about you, but there are times in this life right now where it, I think we just get very, very small glimpses of the goodness of God. I think we have services like on Good Friday where we look at the judgment of what it took Jesus to reconcile us to himself, that it took him his life and he shed his blood on the cross. And I think we get overwhelmed at times with that. But I think even in our most overwhelmed moments, it's only a minor glimpse of the reality that will be ours one day in heaven. Friend, I'm convinced as I was talking to people this week and as I was studying this, I was humbled, I was blown away that I think one day when we stand face to face before the Lamb and we see him, the Lamb looking as if he's been slain and we see his goodness and we see his mercy face to face, I don't think, I think in a moment we're going to realize the absolute cost that it took him to redeem us. And I think that we will no longer, as Paul says, we're no longer going to see as through a veil. We will see him face to face. And friends, I don't think we're going to be able to do anything but react the way that almost everyone who comes face to face with God in the scriptures does. I think we're going to fall on our face before him and we're going to join in the chorus of heaven and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And friend, that is a great day. That is a great and glorious day. We do not have to fear judgment. Why? Because judgment and wrath has already been poured out, not on us, but on Jesus who willingly took it on your behalf and on mine. It's going to be far better than anything we can imagine. And friend, it's going to be far worse than anything we can imagine. The judgment of the Lamb is going to be far worse than anything we can imagine. Stop and think about the situation that took place when the sixth seal was open. 
It doesn't matter who you are apart from Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your status in life. You can have the biggest house on the hill, on the lake, and and you can have all the possessions that money can buy you. You can have the corner office. You can have all the worldly prestige that this life can offer you, and it will mean nothing when the wrath of the Lamb comes. You will run for the hills, and you will seek shelter amongst the hills, and there will be nothing that will able to hide you. No status, no money, nothing that can hide from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. Nothing. And it's going to be far, far worse. Friends, you see how sad the reality of this is? When people are crying out, it's better that a rock falls on me and for me to die than to look upon the face of the Lamb. I can't stand. Who can stand? And the answer is, apart from Christ, nobody can. You can have the best that this world can offer, or you can be the poorest servant of all. But apart from Christ, guess what? The wrath of God is coming. It will be poured out. It is a reality. And it is going to be terrible. Should we be afraid of the book of Revelation in Christ? The answer is no. We shouldn't. We should not be afraid of the book of Revelation. Why? Because we don't have to fear judgment. Why? Because our judgment has been paid for in Christ. We have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and we will be able to rejoice in that. But can I just tell you, if you don't know Christ, it is the day to be most feared out of any day. It will be worse than any of your worst nightmare. It will be awful. And there will be no clinching it. So what do we do with that? I don't know about you, but impending judgment has to move God's church to action. It has to move us to action. It must move us to actions. Friends, this is real. I don't know how to stress the importance of this anymore. This message, I mean, honestly, as I was studying this this week, it's almost brought me to tears several times because this is real, and I don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about impending judgment. I don't want to think about my neighbors that don't know Jesus will face the wrath of God. I don't want to think about it. It's easier to not think about it. You know what I mean? But God's coming in, in his grace and in his mercy, he's going, I'm giving you the end. I'm telling you why this is important, and I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Church, I think this drives us one. As a church, as followers of Christ, we must persevere. We must persevere. I'm just going to tell you because the book says it. It's not me telling you. It will get worse. If you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. It will get worse following Jesus. And guess what? It's going to cost you something. If you're a young person in here, you're in a high school, middle school, maybe even younger, it will cost you to follow Jesus. But can I tell you, young, old, in between, it's worth it. It's worth it. There are people all over the world right now who give their lives for the sake of Christ. 
There's people in Muslim countries that they're lined up and if they're, they're told to convert and to bow to Allah, who are Christians in Muslim countries who refuse, 14-year-old kids who refuse to bow their knee to Allah and they stand strong and guess what happens? They're beheaded for their faith. There was a story in 1999 of a, one of the worst school shootings in the history of the United States up to that point at Columbine High School in, in Colorado. And there's a story, so it goes, of a young lady named Cassie that was hiding, and a shooter came up to her and said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, and he shot her and killed her. There are very real people right now who are giving their lives for the sake of Christ. And friend, can I tell you something? It's going to cost you something. It might not cost you your life. It might not. But it's going to cost you something. There's people in our church right now who have lost relationships with their family because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I know of people who their mom has disowned them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to cost you to follow Jesus. It will cost you a business deal of someone going, just bend the numbers a little bit and it's going to benefit us and it'll benefit us, our stakeholders. It's going to benefit everyone. And you go, no, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you friendships. Following Jesus cost. And you must count the cost before you follow him. But friend, I've got to tell you, when we stand before the throne and we are not fearing the judgment of God, guess what? It is worth it to follow Jesus. Persevere. And guess what? God does not expect us to persevere alone. I don't think that those who are getting beheaded, I don't think those who are losing their very lives, I don't think those who are losing relationships with family in and of themselves are strong enough to do it. God knows that. And so what does he do? He gives us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in there driving us going, stay true, stay faithful, stay strong. It's worth it. Keep going. Amen. Church, we must persevere. And I think there's a second call. Because of Jesus' impending judgment, I think there's a second call for the church, and it's this. We have to share the gospel. We have to share the gospel. Have you, guys, have you all heard that we're doing a thing called three-by-five cards? Anybody? Raise your hand. Yeah, nod something. Yeah, okay, good. We're on the same page. We're doing this thing called three-by-five cards. If you don't know what that is, is that it's a real... It's a real uh, real hearty felt strategy. We take a three by five card from Walgreens and we write on it three to five names of people who don't know Jesus. And we said, begin praying for them. And church, I'm going to keep calling us. I'm doubling, tripling down on this. Pray, pray, pray. Why? Because coming to Christ is a spiritual reality. Look at Revelation chapter six. Those who know the wrath of the lamb, do they turn to the lamb? Do they repent? No, it's a spiritual battle. Instead of praying to the one who's pouring out the wrath, they turn and pray to the rocks to fall on them. And so someone coming to faith in Christ, it's a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual battle. And prayer unleashes God's power in those people's lives. So pray, pray, pray fervently pray. Don't give up praying. But guess what? It's time to open your mouth you got to open your mouth. you got to open your mouth and share with them. 
talk to them. Why? Because there's an urgency to the gospel. Because are we living in the last days? Yep. Have we been living in the last days? Yep. Are we going to be living in the last days tomorrow? Yep. Could Jesus come today? Yes. You want to know the only thing we won't be able to do in heaven, really, is evangelize? That door will shut, but it's not shut yet. And you've got neighbors, you've got friends, you've got coworkers, you've got family members who don't know Jesus, and I know what you're thinking. What if I say the right th- wrong thing? What if, what if they reject me? What if, what if, what if? And we have all these what ifs of why we don't share, friend. I don't care what the what ifs are. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. Persevere. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need. And guess what? You might mess up. And guess what? That's okay. But it's time to open our mouth. It's time to risk something and share the good news of the gospel. Why? Because there's an urgency, because there's a judgment that is coming that is real, and it will be terrible. And I got to tell you, I was convicted about this this week. Dave, why aren't you opening your mouth? Dave, you can get up and preach, and that's fine, and that's good, and but what about your neighbor? What about the ones on your three by five cards? There's some of you in this room or maybe listening online or maybe I don't know where you're watching at or whether you're in Bland, Amps, Roan County, whatever, that you may be hearing this message and you may be sitting there going, I've never believed in Jesus. And maybe for the first time today you're going, I need him. I never understood the reason why I need him, but now I get it. And so here's what I'm going to do in a minute is we're going to move into a stage of next steps, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to believe. Why? Because there was, a, there was a commentator that I read this week that I think sums it up really well. His name's Daniel Aiken, and he writes this, a great day is coming for every one of us when we will come face to face with the Lamb. We will either stand with him in his salvation or stand before him at his judgment We will either rejoice in his glorious grace or be terrified before his righteous wrath. Grace or wrath? Forgiveness or condemnation? Where will you stand? Take your stand for the Lamb, King Jesus, now. A day is coming when it will be too late. So what do we do with this this week? What are our next steps this week? One is that if you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, now. There is no time like the present. Now is the time to believe. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we walk through a few more next steps. I'm going to ask you to have a conversation just in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud. Just between you and God. You know what prayer is? Prayer is a conversation. It's you, your heart crying out to God. And maybe for the first time, you cry out to him in your own words and you say, God, I need you. I understand that you are real. I know that you died to save me. Whatever words you want to use, but Jesus, I want to follow you. And we're going to have prayer teams that are going to be up front after the service in all our venues and all our campuses. And they would love to talk with you. If you're in this venue or you're on this campus even, I would love to talk with you. But today's the day. The second or the first one on the screen is this, do the live it out. I know some of you are like, oh, there we go, live it out again. I bet I could have guessed that one. 
But friend, how are we going to persevere to the end if we don't know Jesus? And how do we know Jesus? We know Jesus by studying his word. We know Jesus by diving in and further looking at what God has for us in his word so that way when the day of trial, when the day of persecution comes, we will know Jesus. We'll know that we know that we know that we know him. And there won't be any doubt whether we'll stand for him. The second is this, three by five card. Pray, 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 pray. And when you think you've prayed enough for those people, pray some more for those people. And now maybe it's time to move to the next step. It's open your mouth. Risk. Risk saying something wrong. Risk saying something right. Because guess what? They might say no. It's a spiritual reality. And if they reject, they are not rejecting you. It is not your job to save them. That is Jesus' job. It's your job to share with them. Finally, we're going to ask God this question, and we're going to give a moment to reflect on this in all our venues and campuses. And The question is this, God, where am I being threatened for my faith? It may be a loss of a relationship, maybe a loss of a job, and maybe I'm afraid to share because I'm afraid of what people will think of me. So where do I feel like I'm being threatened for my faith? And here's what we're going to ask is that in the midst of that, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give you everything you need to accomplish all that he's asking you to do. So here's how we're going to work it. I'm going to pray here in a second, and we're going to go into a chance of reflection. At the end of that, your venue pastor, your host will come up, and they'll lead you guys into what's next for your service. So, Father, even now, as we want to hear from you, God, where are we being threatened, and would you give us what we need to face it? Speak now. Jesus, as we study a passage like this, we read it and it sounds completely frightening. And for those that are apart from you, it, it is. But Jesus, I pray that you would give us everything we need to be able to stand for you in the face of trials, in the face of persecution, in the face of whatever may come. God, that you will give us everything we need by the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells in us to face all that we will. And God, may we be a people who are faithful to the very end, who we will stand for you so that we can stand before you, sealed with a white robe, and that we will be able to join the chorus of heaven of singing, holy, holy, holy. Why? Because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been covered.
It's in his name we pray. Amen. The only reason we can stand is because of one man. His name is Jesus. It's in Christ alone that we can stand. So I can't think of a better way to end our service than to stand together, symbolically stand together, and literally, symbolically and literally stand together and sing in Christ alone.